Would you turn in your Bibles to Revelation chapter 2? Revelation chapter 2, I'll read the first seven verses. This is Jesus' letter to the church at Ephesus. Revelation 2, verse 1. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, The words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands, I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and have found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Yet this you have, that you hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. We'll end our scripture reading there, and let's pray one final time, asking for God's help. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you speak to us in your word. We thank you for the specificity of your revelation to us, Lord. We have individual congregations called out in whole New Testament letters, but also in this section of the book of Revelation. We thank you, though, that it is not just to them, but it's also to us. And might you give us ears to hear what you are speaking to your churches this evening. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So we come to that first of seven letters to seven churches here in Revelation 2 and 3. And, and we looked at this in an overview sense last time, a couple weeks ago, uh, in our introduction to these seven letters. And we noted the connection of these letters with chapter 1, where John receives the vision of this Son of Man. And Jesus is standing in the midst of these seven lampstands. And these seven lampstands represent uh, seven churches. And Jesus holds the seven stars, which are the seven angels of these churches. And we we noted that Jesus is walking in the midst of his churches, as these lampstands represent. That he cares about what's going on in his church. He's observing, he's evaluating, and he's critiquing, as we see tonight. That Jesus, with his eyes as a flame of fire, sees all that's going on in his churches, but cares deeply, uh, both good and bad. But we also noted that that these seven churches, although historical real churches, are are representative of all of the churches, of all of time. And so, as Jesus speaks to the church in Ephesus, he speaks to us. And as Jesus evaluates the church at Ephesus, he evaluates us. And so may God give us ears to hear 
uh, so that we might understand what Jesus is speaking uh, to us tonight. Uh, To help us uh, frame this uh, message, there are seven C's in your outline, so I tried to create the perfect sermon, so I have seven C's for you tonight. So first, the church addressed. The church addressed. This is the church in Ephesus. And it's important that we know something of the historical background of the churches uh, that, are, that are here. Now, some people want to uh, make that the only thing that they want to analyze, and, and they have all this historical insight and try to make all of these connections. And, and in many ways, that, that goes too far, but some of the unique aspects of, of each of these congregations and their historical setting, I, I think, are important. But it's important to keep and remind, remind us, as one commentator says, the characteristics of the cities were much the same. The, these were ancient cities in Asia Minor, and so they were very much similar uh, in their content, context. It was the characteristics of the congregations that differ, and so we want that to be our emphasis as we, we go. But, but Ephesus was an important city. It was the largest city in Asia Minor at this time. At that time, it was a harbor city, which made it a, a center of commerce. It, it was a city that had a great uh, deal to play in finance and medicine. Uh, religion was practiced there, pagan religion of all sorts of varieties, it, you, you may be familiar from the book of Acts that the, the local patron deity is Artemis, and that massive temple of Artemis stood in uh, antiquity there. It's, it's the largest Greek temple in antiquity. It's 425 feet long and 230 feet uh, high. It's, it's one of the eight, uh, seven wonders of the ancient world. Large amounts of money were stored in this temple, which made this uh, uh, place a center of, com- of finance in the ancient world. And, and the city of Ephesus was devoted to this patron uh, deity. Although there's all other sorts of deities that would have been worshipped, but also with this local religion, the imperial cult of Rome would have been a practice that all sorts of uh, things would have been, uh, and, and oblations would have been given uh, to the emperor. Augustus, after his death, was worshipped in Ephesus as God and as son of God. And so all sorts of, of pagan religion was alive and well in this city. There was a Jewish community in this city that, that had a long history and apparently thrived there. We know that a Christian church was founded around the mid-50s. That from the book of Acts, uh, Apollos was, was associated, Acts 18, with this early church. Aquila and Priscilla were associated with this church. The Apostle Paul came here. Uh, shortly after that time, and he, he taught, we're, we're told, for two years in the school uh, of Tyrannus, and I think he spent a total of three years a- at one time. Remember, Paul almost died here when the city went in a riot, and, and they all uh, went to their, their uh, public place and, and were crying out for how many ever hours, uh, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. 
Paul had a special bond with the Ephesian elders that, that as he's, he knows he's headed to Jerusalem, he meets the, the Ephesian elders there at the shore, and, and he weeps with them, and he, and he instructs them. Paul writes that whole epistle to the church at Ephesus. Paul sends his apostolic representative Timothy to, to uh, serve in this church, and the pastoral epistles to Timothy address uh, situations in this, con- in this congregation. And as we've seen, the apostle John, it is said in later life, settled in this congregation. So it has a, a great history in, in terms of those who ministered there and, and some important figures. So as one commentator says, Ephesus, the church at Ephesus was the oldest, largest, and most varied of those addressed by the apocalypse. It would have sort of been more central of a church. John would have been a pastor here, and so he would have been most familiar with this church as he's addressing them uh, here in this revelation. So it's a church with a solid apostolic foundation It was located in a large, diverse, pagan environment, and the challenges to being a faithful follower of Christ would have been immense. And they were strong in in some areas, this church was, and they were weak in others, as we'll see. So that is the church address. Secondly, the characteristic of Christ emphasized. We noted in our introduction to these, uh, this section here that at the beginning of each letter, uh, some unique aspect of Christ is emphasized that comes from the previous chapter, in particular that vision of the Son of Man that John sees. And this uh, uh, characteristic that we see here is that the words come from Him who holds the seven stars in His right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. So we saw in verse 20, the seven stars of chapter 1 are the seven angels of the seven churches. And we noted that likely these are some sort of angelic representation used in apocalyptic literature, and that's how the address is being made here, though it's unsure. So Jesus holds these, these representatives of the church in his hand. And so once again, showing that close connection. The church is reminded, this is the words of him who walks among the seven golden lampstands. It's reminding this church of that image that Jesus is present among his churches. He's, he's evaluating, he's observing, he, he's caring for what uh, they do. And in one sense, I think this image is important here, not only for uh, the church at Ephesus, but this is the first image we get of Christ uh, as a way of introducing all of these letters. That it's reminding us uh, in this first letter that Jesus is the one who is evaluating his churches with his eyes as a flame of fire. He sees through it all. He cares what's going on, and he's, he's evaluating out of love. And so that, that, that's encouraging if you're a church on the margin, if you're a church in persecution, if you're a church of suffering. Jesus is there with you, and he sees you. But it's sobering to a church in compromise that has, 
that has gone the way of the world and has compromised in doctrine and faith. It's a reminder to them, Jesus sees your actions, and he is evaluating. But for the good and the bad, it reminds us that Jesus is Lord of his church. So that's the characteristic of Christ emphasized. Thirdly, the commendation given. Most letters here are going to give uh, uh, something good about the congregation that Jesus uh, commends, along with something uh, that he's rebuking them for. And the commendation comes in verse 2. I know your works, your toil, your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be uh, false or liars. So Jesus commends this church for their labor, their toil, their endurance, their perseverance, and particularly that toil and endurance which are required in maintaining doctrinal fidelity. That, that, that there are those that were coming into the church claiming to be apostles, and this church didn't just take them at their word, but evaluated them. That we know it, the, the office of apostle was a very uh, uh, reserved office, unique in the early church. That apart from the twelve apostles, we, we see a, a few others named apostles, Paul being one of them. And we know certain characteristics were required in order to verify that you were an apostle. And so here are teachers coming to Ephesus, and they're saying, hey, we're apostles, we have apostolic authority, you should listen to, to our teaching, and they evaluated them. Have you seen the resurrected Lord? You know, can, you, can you do the, the signs uh, that the apostles can do? And they found these apostles to be false, or they found them to be liars. They, they claimed to be apostles, but they actually weren't. And the, this church uh, is commended because they evaluated them. They, they, they did the toil and the perseverance that was required for maintaining doctrinal fidelity. Jesus also commends them for another group that they withstand in verse 6. You, you have this, you hate the work of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. This is likely a different group than these uh, pseudo-apostles. Uh, and, and we'll see the Nicolaitans show up in the church in Pergamum, which they actually accepted their teaching, but the church at Ephesus didn't accept uh, the teaching of the Nicolaitans. And their teaching likely had to do with eating food uh, offered to idols. And so we may delve into that a little bit more when we get to the church in Pergamum. But the point is, uh, Ephesus was, was getting onslaught with all sorts of false teachers that were coming into their congregation, and they were, they were withstanding that uh, teaching. They were holding the line. Uh, they were saying no if it didn't equate uh, to doctrinal fidelity to the apostolic tradition. Now, as we know, when we read the, early, uh, the New Testament, the early church was, was onslaughted by a variety of teaching. You know, Paul, it seems as if Paul will, will establish a church and he's not even out of the city and something happens that they turn to a false teaching. This is what Paul tells the Galatians. I, I'm so amazed that you so quickly 
have deserted the true gospel for another. Remember, in, in, in Paul's letters to Timothy, there, he's, he's confronting Timothy to hold the line. And Timothy's in Ephesus. Don't, don't, uh, don't uh, compromise uh, with these, these people that are trying to, to swerve you from the faith. In fact, Paul himself, it's amazing if you, you read Paul's words to the Ephesian elders there in Acts chapter 20, that, that he tells them, this is Acts 20, verse 29. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. This is to this church that, that we're speaking. And from among your own selves, he's talking to the elders, from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after themselves. Even in your own leadership, elders, men will arise that will, that will teach things twisted and will draw disciples away. So you must be on guard. You must pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock. That's what Paul says. And when we get to Revelation, uh, that's what they're doing. They, they have paid careful attention to their doctrine. And, and, and they've tested people, even people claiming to be apostolic leaders, and they found them to be liars. And Jesus commends them for that. You know, it's important for us to remember this commendation because we'll, we'll spend some time on Jesus' critique, which is a real uh, critique and a very uh, a sobering reality, but he commends them for this. And, and they, haven't, they haven't worn out, Jesus says. I know you are enduring patiently, this is 2, 3, and bearing up for my name's sake, and you've not grown weary. It can be wearying for year after year to endure onslaught after onslaught, and then you may just get tired and say, well, we'll just allow a little bit of doctrinal compromise, because we're tired of the fighting. But Jesus commends them for, for uh, withstanding against that. I, I thought of the example, uh, in our mod- uh, a modern day example, of someone like uh, John MacArthur. He's been, been a pastor longer than this church has existed. And, and, and uh, there's been many, many issues that he, in his very public uh, position, has just taken on too much uh, pressure to himself, to his congregation. And, you know, I don't, he doesn't personally say this, but you would think you'd get wearied after a year. And Jesus commends such faithfulness to the truth. There's a play on word here that maybe not be um, as clear to us in our English translations. In verse 3, Jesus says, I know that you you are enduring patiently and and, and bearing up for my name's sake. And, and we said in verse 2, he said, you cannot bear with those who are evil. So you're not bearing with evil, but you're bearing uh, for my name's sake to the truth. And a similar thing. I know your toil. And then he says in verse 3, I know you've not grown weary. It's the same word. It's very hard to, to translate in English, but maybe... You've toiled, but you haven't toiled out. 
And so Jesus is reminding this church, I see it. I know your endurance. I know your, your affliction. And I commend you for that. And you've not given up. You've not thrown in the towel. Jesus commends this church for holding to the faith once for all delivered to the saints. So that's the commendation. Next, the correction and call to repentance. Just when the Ephesians thought they could pat themselves on the back, Jesus says in verse 4, but I have this against you. And those are very sobering words. This is the Lord Jesus himself speaking to his church in very specific terms and says, I have this against you. It can be terrifying in one sense. But we have to remember that even in these very sobering, very serious words from Jesus, these are out of love that he speaks this correction to this church. And we see this in, at the end of, of these letters to the letter of Laodicea and reading these, these uh, letters in their entirety. Jesus says in chapter 3, verse 19, Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. And so the same goes for the church in Ephesus. He loves them, and so he's going to reprove them. He's going uh, to seek to correct uh, what is wrong with them. What does Jesus have against this church? You abandon the love you had at first, or you've lost your first love. What does it mean to lose your first love? This is the key to understand this this passage, really. Some would like this to mean that this is, you know, that early, white, hot passion for God that that leads to evangelistic efforts, that you, you have this... Simple love, you know, like the early convert that just goes out and is unashamed to, to just share the gospel with, with everyone around them. But you've lost that in, in the midst of all your doctrinal controversies. You're no longer evangelizing. That's one, uh, losing your first love. I think that's unlikely because it never actually says that you've stopped evangelizing. And in fact, it does say that you're bearing up for my name's sake, meaning they're receiving some level of of, uh, correction for holding fast to Christ. So it seems that they're testifying to Christ. And when Jesus calls them to repentance, he calls them to do the works you did at first. It's the same construction here. The love you had at first, I'm calling you to do the works you you did at first. And so if those works were evangelism, why not say that? Rather, I think the meaning of losing your first love is that you've lost love for each other. That you, you've lost love in, in all of your doctrinal fidelity, that you've lost the love for the brethren that seeks itself tangibly to care for the needs of others around you. Very simply, love is just a commitment to another's well-being. And Jesus calls, and Jesus calls this love their first works. And so we see love is associated with action, with works. 
that we know that that love was uh, to be evident in in their Christian lives. Jesus made it clear, a new commandment I give you, that you love one another as I have loved you. That the Apostle Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and I have all faith, I I have all the knowledge there is to know about God and His Word and and the history of the church, I, I know all of that. But if I don't have love, Paul says, I am nothing. If I give away all I have and if I deliver up my body to be burned, if I'm going to be a martyr but I don't have love, I gain nothing. Why? Because love is an essential characteristic of the Christian life. And this church at its foundation was, was, uh, had lots of love for, for each other. That, that, manifested itself in tangible good works towards one another and kindness and caring for one another. But in the midst of all of the onslaught and and doctrinal uh, challenges, that love had waned. Which reminds us, as one commentator notes, doctrinal purity and loyalty can never be a substitute for love. And this church lost this commitment to each other's well-being. And what's the consequence? It's a very serious consequence. Jesus says, If you don't repent, I will come and remove your lampstand from its place. What does it mean to lose the lampstand? It could mean loss of existence. The church would just dissipate, but more likely it's loss of status, loss of status as a real church that heaven recognizes, that that Jesus says, if you don't repent and start loving each other as you're supposed to, I will not recognize you as one of my churches. You may meet, you may continue, but I'm not going to be with you. Because I will not be associated with any church that does not practice love. And this is a very sobering warning to every church. How many churches in our nation do you think that that still exist and meet and have uh, worship services have long in heaven had their lampstand removed because of their lack of love. Here's a church that had a strong apostolic foundation. I mean, if you were selecting pastors, it's like, oh, we want Paul, we want Timothy, we want John. And all of the, the, the sound teaching and sound examples that they had 
in less than 50 years, this congregation is in danger of losing their status as a Christian church. As another commentator notes, a church can continue only so long on a loveless course. Without love, it ceases to be a church. So part and parcel of being a Christ follower is loving like Jesus did. He gave himself in self-sacrificial service for others, and those who belong to him should give themselves to self-sacrificial service to others. So not to love like Christ is to be at a risk of not actually knowing Christ. And this love is exemplified in acts of service to other believers in particular. That it's, it's, it's among the household of faith. Faith, first and foremost, that these loves, that these love works show themselves in tangible service. That the church in Ephesus stopped doing these first works. They stopped loving each other like they, they should have. And their love should have grown over the years, but it had grown cold. So Jesus calls them to repent. Note, note the three stages here in Jesus' uh, call to repentance. Verse 5. Remember <clears throat> from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. Remember. Remember those former works. Remember how you used to be committed to this biblical command of loving one another. Remember uh, and recall how you've fallen from that. You, you have to acknowledge it, your sin and then repent from it. And then do the works. Show in your life tangible fruit that you've turned course of action. Remember, repent, and do. So these are stages to recall. So that's the correction and the call to repentance. Next, the consolation for heeding the correction. Jesus doesn't just chide this church and say, you've lost your love, now I'm out. No, he calls them to repentance and he gives them great consolation if they do. Look at the, verse, the end of verse 7. To the one who conquers, I will, I will grant to eat of the tree of life which is in the paradise of God. We noted this word of conquering before in our intro sermon that it, it essentially means to win in the face of obstacles, that to conquer was to be faithful to Christ. And in this particular example here, being faithful to Christ uh, was, was repenting of this failure to love, continuing to hold fast to doctrinal fidelity and continuing to love. And Jesus says, if you do that, if you hold fast to me, if you remain faithful, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. You might say, the tree of life, that was, that was, that was with Adam and Eve. What does that have to do with uh, Christians today? Well, as we noted also that the end of each of these letters is connected to the end of the book of Revelation, and we're told in the new heavens and the new earth that the tree of life is there. 
And it brings healing for the nations. That this tree of life first appeared in the garden with Adam and Eve. And it was a sign for Adam and Eve that that if they passed the test, as it were, to not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, uh, to obey God's command there, that there would have been a time in which uh, they would have gotten access to this tree, and that tree was the seal of, of eternal life that was promised to them if they were to eat of it. And that's why when they sinned, they were barred from the tree of life in the garden. So that tree of life represents eternal life. Full life, righteous life with God. And we've been barred from that since Adam and Eve. But Jesus, that last Adam, came and He did what Adam didn't do. Fully obeyed God's commands fully complied to what God required of him, offering himself for us as a sacrifice for sin so that if we repent and believe, if we align ourselves to Jesus, Jesus says, I'm going to give you now to eat of the tree of life. That paradise is waiting for you and you will have eternal life if you hold fast to me. So that's the consolation. If you want any sort of encouragement, why, why follow Jesus' correction? Well, eternal life is at stake here. So that's the consolation. Next, uh, and finally, the connection to our lives and church. Look at the first half of verse 7. Now, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And so Jesus is speaking not just to the church at Ephesus here, he's speaking to all churches of all time, and he's speaking to us tonight. And so as the truth revealed here is just as true for us, and we must heed just as much as they were to heed. Two lessons for us, I think, from this text. First, doctrinal fidelity is important to Jesus and should be important to us. That the words of Jude, verse 3, I think are important here. That Jude said, Beloved, I, I was very eager to write you about our common salvation. I wanted to write just an encouraging letter about our, our common salvation. But he said, I, I, I found it, although I was very eager, I found it necessary instead now to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. That, that he said, I, I, want, I wanted to write about the common uh, foundation, but I, want to, I just have to write to you now to recall you have to contend for the faith. And he goes on in all of this false teaching that was confronting whoever he is writing there. And he's saying, contend for the truth. Don't, don't compromise. Don't let these people come in among you and, and, and take the line because the gospel is at stake here. Recall once again Paul's word to Timothy, who is overseeing the church at Ephesus, 2 Timothy 1.14. Guard the good deposit entrusted to you. That this body of truth, of Christ and the gospel, 
revealed in his word, is, is given to us, it's been entrusted to us, and you must guard it with your life. If the gospel is to survive to the next generation, it must be contended for in the present generation. We see this in, in, uh, when we study church history in the Reformation. So, somebody let the ball drop. More than one, one somebody. Somebody's let the ball drop. That they let all sorts of, of false teaching creep into the church of Christ. And it took an event like the Reformation to recall these fundamental gospel truths that we must contend for. One other scripture, 1 Timothy. Once again, these pastorals to, to Timothy and Ephesus. 1 Timothy 4.16. Why is it so important? To guard this, keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this, for by, for by so doing, you will save both yourselves and your hearers. Nothing but eternal life is at risk here. And so you must guard this, Timothy. You must watch your life. You must watch your doctrine. This is why the church has preserved for us confessions and creeds that the, the, the faith is worth contending for and being very precise about and that they have left us a, a mark in our creeds and our confessions that, that we must take seriously and hold fast to. Doctrinal fidelity is important to Jesus and should be important to us. Secondly, love for the brethren is a sine qua non of the Christian life. You get your Latin phrase of the day uh, tonight. Sine qua non, you might know, without which not. That which is absolutely essential. That which is absolutely necessary. The sine qua non of the Christian life is love. If you don't have love, you don't have the Christian life. So a few things about love here. because I think this is the central message of this uh, exhortation from this church. Well, love is not a New Testament thing. It's rooted in the Old Testament. That, that the Israelites were told in the law to love your neighbor as yourself. And Paul, in fact, that command is so central. Jesus summarizes the law by saying, love the Lord your God and love your neighbor as yourself. And Paul says in Romans 13, 8, the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. The law can be summarized in love. It can be fulfilled in loving your neighbor and loving God. So it's rooted in Old Testament law. Love is, if this isn't clear, it's clear now, it's commanded of every believer. John, I, I noted this before, but I'll read it again. John 13, verse 34, Jesus says, uh, to his disciples, a new commandment I give to you that you love one another. 
Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. So Jesus says, my command is that you love other people like I've loved you. And how did Jesus love them? He's going to die for them. In a self-sacrificial death. So how should we love one another? Like Jesus. In a very self-sacrificial way. Not when it's convenient. I'll love you when it doesn't really cost me much. No, I will love you if it costs me my life. Is the kind of depth of love of the Christian for one another. And this, and so Jesus says, this is the this is the mark that people will know you are my disciples. They won't know you are my disciples. Oh, all the smart people are Christians. All the fashionable people are Christians. That's the mark of being a Christian. No, what's the mark that people are going to to point you out? Their love. Working itself out in tangible, self-sacrificial acts of service. Which leads us thoroughly to say that love is not only commanded, it's necessary for all Christians. That the first fruit of the Spirit mentioned in Galatians 5 is love. One other text here, 1 John in chapter 3. Verse 10, and this is evident, who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. You don't love your brother? Pretty simple, you're not a Christian. For this is the message you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. Just note, this isn't perfect love all the time. This is a, a love that hopefully grows over time, but, but, is, but is there, nevertheless. We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brothers were righteous. Verse 15, everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. Do you hate your brother? John says eternal life does not abide in you. By this we know, love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay our lives down for the brethren. And John gets specific. It's not just... I love you. I got this warm, fuzzy feeling towards you. No, it's I love you and I'm willing to lay myself uh, down for you. Or, or moreover, if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? That also, not just I'll lay down my life, I'll give of my material things to help my brother or sister in need. Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. This is what Jesus says. Do the first works. That, you know, love in our culture is such an emotional word, which it does have emotion, but it's a very active word. 
That's my fourth point. Love is active. I think it was a book on marriage. Love is a verb. I think that's helpful. That when Paul tells the Ephesians to love their wives uh, as Christ loved the church, it's not just husbands. Make sure you always have that warm, fuzzy feeling uh, towards your wife. And just remind her of that all the time. If you just did that, and you didn't do any self-sacrificial acts towards your uh, wife, she would begin to doubt that you actually loved her. Rather, love your wife as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. Die. Be willing to die for your wife. So love is active. This must be a part of our lives. So to summarize here, a commitment to truth and a commitment to love are not mutually exclusive. It's not an either-or situation. It's a both-and. Faithfulness to Christ requires both doctrinal fidelity and also self-sacrificial love towards those around us. And who's our greatest example? Jesus. Jesus didn't compromise at all in doctrine. He held fast to the truth of the knowledge of God and didn't waver. And yet he had dinner with with prostitutes and, and sinners and tax collectors. And Jesus didn't affirm their lifestyle. He didn't commend their sin. But he loved them. And he showed them the solution to their sin and the forgiveness of sin that is offered in him and in the truth of the gospel. And so in Jesus, there is this perfect balance of truth and love. And he is our example uh, of what we should be like and our commitment to truth and love. So look, look at your life. Observe your life. Observe yourself. Which of these areas or where in both of these areas do you see yourself slipping or sliding? Have you softened to the truth? You've softened with sort of saying what you need to say to that coworker, that family member. Is, is homosexuality a sin? It's not natural. Have you softened on truth? Have you hardened on love? You may be so staunch in your commitment to, against homosexuality that you fail to love the actual homosexual person. Have you hardened on your love towards the brethren that, that served, that shows itself in tangible acts of service? You used to do certain things for such and such or for the church and, and you, you've just become embittered towards certain people and certain uh, things that have happened and I'm just, there's no love there. Wherever you're, you're compromised, Jesus says, remember Remember from where you have fallen and repent and then do the former works. There is great reward. 
Well, Jesus has exposed this church of Ephesus before us. He's opened it up, as it were. He's shown the light on us. He's shown us the good and the bad. And the purpose of that is, is uh, to expose both good and bad for encouragement and correction so that they might grow. And the purpose for us is to shine the light on our hearts, on our lives, on our church, to expose our works, both good and bad, and and to commend us in what is good and to correct us in what is bad. And so may the Spirit give us ears to hear as he speaks to us in his word tonight. Amen. Heavenly Father, what a great grace of you to show us our sin and our blindness. We don't like our sin being pointed out to us always, but we know that it is good for our souls if it leads to our repentance and reconciliation with you. And Lord, we know in our lives here and in a fallen world, we can easily compromise with the truth We know that we can easily soften in our love for one another. Lord, where in any area we have fallen, might you convict us and forgive us. Help us to to do those works that you require of us and commend us for. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.